Let's again join in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we in these moments now look to you, we thank you that you speak to us. You have words for our hearts, our lives, to guide us, to give us wisdom, to protect us, to keep us from harm, and above all, to offer to us the life that is abundant and eternal through Christ your Son, the living word, in whose name we pray. Amen. For six years, I had the privilege of uh, spending a few days in the company of younger ministers who had completed their first year in their new charges in what was affectionately known as potty training, post-ordination training. And one of the lessons I saw to inculcate to these, uh, I say young, some of them were, a lot of them were older than me, but uh, in terms of ministry, they were young. One of the the lessons I tried to inculcate was the importance of not introducing swathes of policies into the practice of congregational life. Because it was very tempting to to young men setting out in ministry to want to so quickly shape and mold their congregations into the, 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 the form that they wanted. And they believed that the easiest way to do this was to, to, to lay down laws, to conceive of policies, to devise rules and regulations that, that, that would help guide uh, the fellowship. I can still remember, it's now more than 30 years ago, badgering those poor elders and Douglas and Art Straw, coming up with great ideas that would help uh, the church there. And we understand that drafting policies has become part of everyday life. I suppose where they have bitten hardest is in education. If you're involved in in education, you really understand that policies uh, really eat into much of your time and energy. Schools are required to have policies on admissions, data projection, complaints, staff capability, accessibility, child protection, health and safety, first aid, careers guidance, behaviour principles, staff grievances, and so on. Indeed, I looked up the internet uh, yesterday and it said there is even to be a policy on what's it's called the designated teacher for looked after and previously looked after children policy At the time you got that title written there wasn't much room for anything else but policies are part of everyday life we understand and rules and regulations are important and they they are good for us our world is full of them the bible is full of rules and regulations But there are dangers when when we decide that that we know best what's right for God's people and we don't trust and follow the leadership of the Lord of the church. When we don't allow him to be the one in charge, he to be the one who calls the shots. Uh, Tonight we're returning after our Advent break to our study in 1 Samuel. And we're picking up this story in, in chapter 14. And some weeks ago we looked, hopefully some of you were here or many of you were here, and we looked at the first part of the story where, where this uh, audacious faith of Jonathan caused him to launch out on uh, an attack against the Philistines with only his armor bearer at his side. And Jonathan's conviction about God produced an expectation of God which led to effective service for God. Jonathan knew that Yahweh, his God, was a covenant-keeping God, a saving God. And he trusted that God would be with him and bless him and use him as he stepped out in faith. And the writer of of 1 Samuel has so structured things that he wants us to see the stark contrast. 
we see the fearless faith of Jonathan set alongside the foolishness of Saul. And Saul, in his smug self-importance, makes what is a foolish oath. If you look down at, at verse 24. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now Matthew 9.15, Jesus is teaching there, and he says there is a time for fasting. But for Saul and his army, this was not the time. And, and you'll realize immediately that, that Saul's oath was practically foolish. Practically foolish. Saul did not possess the, the wisdom that, that Napoleon, that great uh, general had, who was first to say, an army marches on its stomach. Now, I've never fought in battle. But I can imagine that hand-to-hand combat is very physically draining. In verse 31, it says there that they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people were very faint. Michmash to Ajalon, that's 20 miles. That's a long, long walk. Never mind having to fight for your life as you made that journey. Many of you know I do a bit of cycling, and uh, it's very important to feed yourself when you're cycling if you want to keep going, and you burn 600 calories per hour. So if you're out for a day's cycle, maybe six or more hours, you, you, by the end of that, you could, you could literally eat a horse. A few years ago, we, uh, a previous congregation, a group of us cycled from Mizzenhead to Malinhead. We, we had our first 100-mile day, and we went, went back to the hotel, and we had a lovely meal in the hotel, and the younger guys from the, the group just walked straight out the front door of the hotel, crossed the road, and into McDonald's for another meal because they just couldn't get enough food into their bodies. That Their bodies craved food to help them to recover. And that's the way we're designed. God has made us that to have energy to be output, we need to have food put into us. And the Israelite army are, are hungry because Saul has this foolish oath that hindered their effectiveness in battle. And by contrast, we see Jonathan's wise assessment of what was unfolding, verses 29 and 30. Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. You remember what God had promised? He said to to Moses and the Israelites in Egypt that he would lead them back to to a land. and, And this land was marked by two things. It was flowing with milk and honey. And when you read that, you think, well, he didn't really mean that literally. Yes, he did. This was not an empty promise. Honey is just simply dripping from the cone all around them. But Saul's foolish oath caused the Israelite army to, to be restricted. They didn't get that sugar rush that Jonathan had from his mouthful of the honey's sweetness. It was practically foolish. It was a stupid thing to say. But it was also personally foolish. Personally foolish because Saul had made this battle all about himself. 
Again, look at verse 24. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemy. It's a great prayer to pray. If it's a little oxymoronic. But the prayer would be this. Lord, please, never go along with my plan. We need to be people who trust God to lead and guide us. And we have to understand that there's always this great tension, this great pull on us between religion and gospel, between law and grace. And and it's this declaration of Saul that should remind us here of, of those first century Pharisees that we encounter in the gospel records. You know how Jesus uses the Pharisee as the example. He tells the story in Luke 18 of two men who went to pray. And he he recounts the the prayer of the Pharisee. Luke 18, 11 says this. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See, there's two things to, to, to note about this Pharisee's prayer. One is that, that he's proud of his abstention from food. And, and he, he, his practice is far in excess of what the scriptures require of him. But he, he does what, what God doesn't require and he boasts of it before God. And then in this short prayer, notice how many times he speaks of himself. And when people are, are legalists, are pharisaical, are, are focused on religion, not gospel. What happens is that it turns the heart in on itself and thus away from God. You see, this man, as Jesus tells us, his prayer is pointless. He goes home unjustified. And here in this story, we see that Saul's trajectory is exactly the same. He mistakenly believes that what is happening is all about him. But the enemies, the Philistines were not Saul's enemies. They were not even the enemies of Israel. They were the enemies of God. If you look back in the story, back to this previous section in verse 6, we see Jonathan understands this. He said to his young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And Jonathan calls them the uncircumcised. They're they're not part of God's covenant people. They have set themselves to destroy those who are. They are God's enemies. They're not Saul's enemies. And the victory that is achieved is by God's intervention. And if God would not intervene, if God would not come to work in this battle, there would be no help for Israel. And we need to be refreshed and understand that there are only two sides in this great cosmic conflict. And you're either for God or you are against him. There is no middle ground, no neutrality. Indeed, it's often discomforting for us to think, as Paul writes in Romans 5 and verse 10, to say that that you were enemies of God. Because if you're not aligned with God, if you're not fully for him, you are against him. So we need to remember that God is the one who has enemies, not so much his people. And the church, as his people, are victorious. We, we have that 
assurance of victory in him because he saves his people. And without him, there is no salvation, no hope. In chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we are reminded under Christ the head, the church is his body and spouse, the fullness of God who fills all in all. And the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the house and the family of God. And I understand that in my position in ministry, there is this grave danger. For me mistakenly to believe that that what happens in in congregational life is is really all a reflection of me. That when when things go well, well, I should take the credit. And when things go badly, well, I should take the blame. And then that would motivate me to do all that is within my power to ensure that things go well so that I can constantly take the credit. And that's a challenge that I have to deal with in, in my position. But it's, it's something that you all have to wrestle with too if you're part of this fellowship, if you're in membership here. Because there's often people speak to me about, they're concerned about the reputation of first Portadown. And they say, well, we have a tradition to uphold. We have a, we have a heritage to uphold. People speak this way. There's a first Portadown way of doing things. But we must forever be challenged by God's word that it's not about me or about first Portadown. It's only and ever about the honor of the name of Jesus Christ. Our purpose is never to bring glory to ourselves individually or as a congregation collectively. Our only desire is to give glory to Jesus Christ. And we realize that only he can keep the church. Only he can save the church. It's not within our power. And so this is the first lesson of this passage. And we've got to ask ourselves, are are we like Saul? Are we turned in on ourselves? Does everything revolve around us? Have sin and pride so captured our hearts that that really we want to make sure that we are thought of highly glorified and exalted in the company of others? Or are we uh, self-forgetful? Are we humble and turned out towards God and worship? Ask yourself, when, when good things happen in your life, Do you readily give God the glory? Or when people praise you for the things that that you've done, do you direct that respect and glory to God? And when people want to make much of you, do you want to encourage them ever to make much of Jesus? We see, first of all, a fully show. Secondly, uh, forbidden oxen. Forbidden oxen. I I read this story yesterday, and again, uh, not sure it's most appropriate here, but... It's just a lovely story. I just love these stories. It's a rather strange story. A man came home in South Africa and there were nine people attempting to, to rob his home. And when he arrived back home, seven of them ran away, but, but, but he caught two of them and he pushed them into the swimming pool. And then he realized one of the robbers couldn't swim. So he jumped in and he rescued this man and pulled him out of the water. But having pulled this man out of the water, the man then grabbed the knife and threatened him again and called for his friends to come back and, and finish the job and rob the house. And so this man, he is reported in the Cape Times, they said, um, the homeowner said, we were standing near to the pool. And when I saw the knife, I just threw him back in. But he was gasping for air and drowning, so I rescued him again. 
and in a sense, you can imagine that's a little bit like Saul in his story throughout First Samuel. One minute Saul's doing the right thing, next minute he's doing the wrong thing, next minute he's doing the right thing. God rescues him, and then he messes up, and, and so it is. Well, well, that's what, what Saul is doing here. First Samuel fourteen thirty-two. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Now Saul has been neglectful of the sin in his own life, but he's very good at, at seeing the sin in the lives of others. And it's not wrong to address sin in the lives of others, but we know what Jesus said. Matthew 7, 1 to 5, how he says, first take the log out of your own eye, deal with your own sin first before you seek to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Saul has been foolish. He has sworn this foolish oath and it's caused the people, it's created the conditions for their sin. Yes, they're responsible for their own actions. They have behaved inappropriately. They've disregarded God's law. And they're so hungry, they're so starving that they can't wait for the animals to be butchered in the proper manner and the blood to be drained. They just eat meat, blood and all. Now God gives strict instructions about this regularly throughout Scripture. Back in Leviticus 17, verses 10 to 12, we read these words. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who, who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And here is Saul, this this great conundrum of scripture. He's not consistently bad. No, he acts wisely. He acts rightly. He, He challenges the people about their sinful practice. He calls them to do what God commands. And he he brings them before him that they would offer their animals in, in sacrifice to God. And they would worship and praise him as the one who is their hope and help. He helps them to get rid of the blood in the appropriate manner, recognizing that blood belongs to the Lord as the source and sustainer of all life. Here is Saul, a messed up man, and yet God uses him to turn people from their sin. God can use any of us if we make ourselves available to him. As the the code of our church says, we are not to refuse light from any quarter. Even the foolish King Saul can be God's instrument. He makes a foolish oath, but he challenges the eating of forbidden oxen. Finally, we, we, we see failed oversight here. Another consequence of Saul's foolish oath is that uh, Saul wants guidance from God, but God does not speak, and, and Saul's so frustrated. He's about to rush off into battle, but bravely, and I assume it's Ahijah the priest who, who says this to him, verse 36. Would you not draw near to God? Would you not seek for God's guidance before you rush ahead? And so they ask God about what his purposes are for the next phase of battle, but there is no answer, no response, just silent. And they discern that God's withholding of an answer is due to sin in the camp. There's, as in Joshua 7, there's an Achan in their midst. 
and while Saul's vow was foolish. It's important that we remember that, that God takes even our foolish vows seriously and he expects us when made to keep them. The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it this way in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 5. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. So to get answers to why there is this problem, to discern its source, they go through this process and and they use these strange instruments of guidance that were used in in, uh, biblical times, the Urim and the Thummim. And God is uh, speaking through these to, to show that Jonathan is the source of this problem. Verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me, what have you done? And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Some versions, the NIV, New Living Translation, have Jonathan questioning, does that deserve death? And note Saul's response, 1 Samuel 1444. And Saul said, God do to me and more also, you shall surely die. Jonathan. Saul's words sound so upright. They sound so holy, but it's further evidence of the pride in his heart. He is willing that his son should die because he, Saul, vowed a foolish oath. Indeed, he compounds his error by making another vow. He says, in effect, God, if Jonathan doesn't die for this, you strike me dead. There's no grief for Saul's Failures. There's no mourning of his foolishness. He compounds his sin in pride. And his prideful heart is blinded to his own faults. Saul would have had his way, except we read of the intervention of the cries. Verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Remember Jonathan's great statement. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few, and here it is by the many. The people swear their oath, they will protect the king's son. He shall not die. And we understand as we read these words that these are not stupid people from centuries ago who behave in ways that we're so much more mature, wise, and able in this age. No. We are all fatally flawed people. We are all serious sinners. We make foolish oaths. We take to ourselves what is not rightfully ours. We enjoy God's gifts of plenty without the appropriate, necessary thankfulness. And our only hope is that that we, the many, are, are, are not saved by many or by few, but by the one. Because there was that day when the crowd cried out, and not that the innocent son of the king be spared, but rather that he be put to death. And as the people here in this text provide a ransom for Jonathan, we discover that Jesus would provide a ransom for the people. 
Leviticus tells us that, that section we read, that it is the blood that makes atonement. The blood of the sacrifice of the Lamb takes away our sin. Jesus dies in our place to forgive us for our errant and foolish ways. Gordon Keady, commenting on this section, says, The warning this presents to Christians should be fairly obvious. There ought to be no heaping of extra biblical rules and regulations upon anybody, supposedly in the name of the Lord. God has spoken in his word. Scripture alone is the sufficient rule for faith and life. God gives us his hope in the gospel, this wonderful good news of this message about Jesus. But we so naturally err toward legalism and and, and rules and and regulations. And and this restricts us from from, from, from experiencing the, the sweetness and tasting the sweetness of the grace of God freely offered in the gospel. We've got to ask ourselves, what is my Christian life committed to? Is it the cause of honoring my name appearing good before others or the cause of building up Am I living to glorify him? Am I assured of his salvation? That he, his work upon the cross is finished. Therefore, uh, rule keeping does not bind me. Do you trust solely in his saving power? Resting confident in his finished work. This offering of Jesus' life, this shedding of his blood as a ransom. Religion or gospel. Legalism, law or grace. What is your confidence in? It's good to know this evening that there is one who ransomed us, who gave his life that we might live. May our hope and help and joy and future lie in his hands. The hands of Jesus Christ pierced for us. Let's pray together.